Well, good morning, everyone. What better thing to do, not just on a day like this, but every day, than to gather and worship. I'm glad you're here this morning, looking forward to taking time to look into God's Word and and see how He's going to challenge us this morning. I know for me, um, this passage, again, was just one of those reminders of remaining faithful and uh, keeping my eyes on Him. And so I'm sure you might be able to relate with me as we look at the Word this morning. So if you want to, you can turn in your Bibles. We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 5. Uh, We're going to look at the last few verses of chapter 5 and then look at, um, I I think, a very familiar incident if you're a student of Scripture in chapter 6, but uh, basically spend the bulk of our time in that passage. I'm sure we've all been there from time to time when you have too much to do and not enough time to do it. You ever feel like that? Some of you are feeling like that right now. Um. The temptation is to cut corners in those moments, right? Because you, you don't feel like you have enough time, enough seconds on, on the clock to be able to help you. And so it's like, okay, how can I maximize my effort in the minimal time that I have? Often, though, many of us have found out that cutting corners, doing something quick doesn't often make the job go faster, right? It actually slows us down because we make a mistake, we do something wrong, we lose something, we drop something, something is broke, whatever the case, and then we have to go back and fix it. Like the student who has had all semester to finish the term paper, only to wait until the last night to hurry online and figure out, okay, how do I write this thing and gather all their information? And then you find out that you're spending more time trying to figure out how to write the paper than if you actually took the time to read the information to write the paper. I'm not speaking from personal example at all on this one. That was a long time ago. Or the tradesmen that you call and and they come and, and they say they can save you a bunch of money on a job by just putting a Band-Aid on whatever is broken, rather than fixing the source. Sometimes the lowest bid isn't the best. Many times the only right way to do a task is really the only way it can be done. Like there's only one way. And sometimes the right way takes a long time. It demands a lot of our resources. It expends a lot of our energy, but in the end, the payoff is worth it. Men, duct tape cannot fix everything. I'm sorry to say that. The same is true in the spiritual life. Often the road to godliness is the road less traveled. It will take time as God molds you and shapes you. And you can't cut corners. And I've seen this as people are growing in their faith and they're pressured by the amount of time that they have or the lack of time that they have. Or maybe they see how other people are growing around them. And, and I don't want to say that they're outwardly trying to cut corners, but they're, they're trying to find the easy ways. You know, like instead of reading the scriptures, they, they listen to podcasts about the scriptures. Or... 
instead of developing a prayer life, they just read the prayer requests and say, okay, I'm praying. You know, it's those kinds of things and moments, even in the spiritual life, where if we're not making the investment, if we're not taking the time, if we're not developing the, the character that is needed. Because if, you, if you're a student of Scripture, you realize that the, the process of discipleship doesn't happen overnight. In fact, the Apostle Paul compared the Christian life to running a race. And he said that if he's going to run the race, he's going to run it well with his eyes fixed on the prize. And if he said if he's going to be a boxer, he's not going to just beat the air. Like every punch is going to have a purpose. And he's going to develop himself and strengthen himself in all of those things. I mean, we live in a day and age where there is so much information at our fingertips. In fact, many of you are holding that device in your hand right now. And you can Google things and you can um, ask all these sorts of questions and, and look at all of these quick websites. And you can miss the... The amazing, deep, awesome privilege of just digging deep in God's word and missing out what God's going to teach you in the process. I met with a wise saint this week. He, he doesn't attend our church. Uh, we, we get together um, once in a while and he confessed to me that lately he was just doing that, trying to listen to other voices, other Christian voices, right? You know, like through podcasts and all those things. But he wasn't in the word as much. And he's going through a significant trial in his life. And he was beginning to realize because he didn't have God's word saturating his heart and mind, he was becoming fearful and overwhelmed in his fear about the situation. And God was faithful and patient to him to come to him and remind him of the value of searching God's word and, and knowing what God wants in his life. Because there's a real danger at play. And we're going to see this in the, in the text this morning. That when we cut corners in our spiritual life, it often leads to tragic results for us and sometimes in the lives of those around us. If we're cutting corners in our walk with God, which you might say, is that possible? Yes, it's possible. You know, you, you do the least amount of effort and expect God to produce the greatest amount of change. Does that make sense? That doesn't work. Because in the Christian life, as we follow Christ and we dig into his word and as we rest in prayer and as we allow the Holy Spirit to work in our lives, what we begin to find out is it's not just an event by event process. It's actually a moment by moment, every breath that we draw, because we depend on God for everything that we have and all that we are. And we can't rush that process. And we can't sit back and do nothing. And then when it's test time, Right. And when I mean test time, I'm not talking about what's on a piece of paper, but like the tests that we face in life, the trials and tribulations, the moments that come into our lives that seem to crush us. We can't be in those moments and all of a sudden think, OK, I know exactly what God wants me to do. We can't cut corners in the spiritual life. 
And yes, it affects us primarily, but it can also affect those around us, the people in our family and the people in our church family. So our text this morning is going to reveal that and remind us of just that as we look at David's life. But we also see from David that when we learn from those mistakes and we listen to the word of God and we recalibrate our thinking and we align our hearts to the truth of God's word, that there is great freedom that God causes in our spirit. There's great freedom that God gives us a spirit, not a fear, but we have great freedom as we stand before him because we know his will. And when we are in the will of God, there's no fear. We can enjoy him and rejoice in his presence. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 5, I just want to highlight what's going on in verses 17 through 25. The, this last part of the chapter, if you remember last week as we, we set the table for 2 Samuel, David ascended to the throne, but he, it wasn't an immediate ascension. He had to wait at least two and a half years to become king over all of Israel and then at least another four and a half to five years before he went into Jerusalem, settled Jerusalem for the nation of Israel and Jerusalem became the city of David. It was going to be the city where David was setting up his throne as the king over all of Israel. And that's what leads us to 2 Samuel chapter 5. Now, as David sets up his throne, the kings and other people from around Israel are kind of paying homage to him because they know that he is this man of valor. And they send all these supplies for David to build a house. And so they build a house for David. He has a palace. The last part of chapter 5 is David now purifying the land. From all of Israel's enemies. And so he wages war with the Philistines. But what's interesting is that David doesn't just assume or presume as Israel's king that he should go out and wage these battles. We read in the text. At least a few places, verses 19 and 23, we read, then David inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And so he goes out to battle. And what happens? The Philistines run off. And then in verse 23, after the first battle, we read when David inquired of the Lord, he said, the Lord said to him, you shall not go directly up this time, but you're going to go around them. You're going to go behind them. And it's almost like a sneak attack. And in this sneak attack, really, God's going to do the the fighting. And God's going to hand over the Philistines to David. And he will not have to strike the army of the Philistines. And what, what do we read in verse 25? Then David did so, just as the Lord had commanded him, and struck down the Philistines. And so David's purifying the land. He's getting rid of Israel's enemies. He's getting it all ready for the nation of Israel to be able to enjoy the land that God had promised. This promise that Israel really wasn't able to enjoy, frankly, in all of their time in the promised land. Because when they went in with Joshua, as they were pushing away the enemies, they did not get rid of the enemies like God had commanded. 
And during the time of Judges and in the time of First Samuel, all of Israel's enemies were still in the land and they were a problem. And that brings us to chapter 6. Chapter 6 focuses on the desire that David had to further strengthen the nation of Israel as he desired for God's presence to be in the city of David as he led the people, ultimately trusting that God was leading him. And so we read in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, this. Now David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned above the cherubim. So David's desire is to bring the ark to Jerusalem. It was his desire, and this is a big deal, because in that desire, he was desiring to bring God's presence into the city that David had settled. David wanted to lead from a place where he knew that the Lord was with him. He wanted the nation to have a central place where they can gather in their worship of God and know that the Lord was with them. He was seeking to unify the people, not just nationally, but also spiritually. But as we're going to see, David tried to do the right thing the wrong way. He was cutting corners. Nobody around him stopped him. Nobody warned him. Nobody said, whoa, David, slow down. His actions resulted in the death of a man. Somebody lost their life. And when that happened, David became angry with the Lord. And so the first part of this chapter is super strange in my mind in the sense of it seems like he's doing the right thing. And then as he's trying to do the right thing, Everything goes off the rails. And as it goes off the rails, David doesn't just sit back and he's saying, okay, I'll learn from it. David's like, God, what are you doing? Do you ever feel like that? You're trying to do the right thing in your mind. Like you think you're doing the right thing and you're expecting God's blessing. And then life goes off the rails and you're thinking, God, what are you doing? I'm trying to do the right thing. Well, we're going to learn some things in this situation that I hope will help us in those moments. But before we go too far, we need to take a step back. And we need to talk about this ark that David wanted to move to Jerusalem. I think it's hard for us to understand all of the symbols and imagery that we find in the Old Testament. I mean, with the tabernacle, with the altars, with the offerings, because in the New Testament age, in the age of grace, right, our, our faith is so personal. It's so in, in what we feel maybe at times private. 
right? We have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And we don't have to, as the author of Hebrews says in the New Testament, go to a priest or offer sacrifices because Christ is the significant high priest and Christ is the better sacrifice. We don't go to God through all of the rituals, all the things that were prescribed in the Old Testament. And when we come across these passages where we think, okay, there's an ark and and there's a tabernacle and they sang certain songs and they offered these kinds of offerings on these certain feast days, we can begin to think, okay, that sounds great, but that really doesn't apply to us because we don't do those things. And so we want to take a step back and we want to consider the value of the ark that David was trying to move. Well, it begins when Israel left Egypt. God gave Moses very specific instructions at Mount Sinai to create the ark. And, and just so, you know, we're all on the same page When you hear ark, you're not hearing Noah's ark. Moses wasn't building a boat. When you hear ark in this context, think piece of furniture. That's what it was. It was a piece of furniture. In Exodus 25, I'm going to read to you verses 10 through 22. Let me just highlight to you what God told Moses about the ark. They shall construct an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide and one and a half cubits high. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and out. You shall overlay it and you shall make a gold molding around it. You shall cast four gold rings for it and fasten them on its four feet. And two rings shall be on one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark with them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be removed from it. You shall put into the ark the testimony which I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide. You shall make two cherubim of gold. Make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and one cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim of one piece with the mercy seat at its two ends. The cherubim shall have their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat with their wings and facing one another. The faces of the cherubim are to be turned towards the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark and in the ark you shall put the testimony which I will give to you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. Very specific piece of furniture. Probably looks something like this. And God gave very detailed, specific instructions of how it should be made And also how it should be moved. The thing is, the ark is not around today. It went missing during the history of the Old Testament. Maybe that's why Indiana Jones was looking for it. Seriously, it went missing and it has not been found to this day. 
And there's all sorts of people that are searching everywhere for it. And I believe there's a spiritual significance for it. Because Christ came. And he's the mediator of the holy place. In Numbers chapter 10, verses 33 through 36, we read this. Thus they set out from the mount of the Lord three days journey with the ark of the covenant of the Lord journeying in front of them for three days to seek out a resting place for them. The cloud of the Lord was over them by day when they set out from the camp. Then it came about when the ark set out that Moses set Then it came about when the ark set out that Moses said, rise up, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered and let those who hate you flee before you. When it came to rest, he said, return, O Lord, to the myriad thousands of Israel. And what what's happening in Numbers 10 is as the ark went with the nation of Israel all throughout the wilderness journeys, it was a sign of God's presence with them. And when they would set the ark down and set it up in the tabernacle after moving it from place to place, the Lord would rest with them a cloud by day and a pillar of fire at night. And it, it settled right over the ark, which was the mercy seat. And in that box were the commandments, right? That God was giving to Moses. And so the tablets were in there of the law of God. In the days of Joshua, when they took the promised land, as they carried the ark with them, we read in Joshua... That as the priests carried the ark across the river, what happened? The river dried up so that it would not become wet. It split as they entered the promised land. And then they set the ark up in the tabernacle in the holy place that only the high priest could enter. And he could only enter once a year on the Day of Atonement to offer the sacrifices that were necessary for the nation of Israel to continue in their relationship with God. The ark was the place where God would dwell with his people. Now we're beginning to understand why David wanted this to furniture in Israel. And not just in Israel, in Jerusalem, in his city where he was king. But in 1 Samuel chapter 4, we read that the nation of Israel was defeated in battle by the Philistines, and they captured the ark. 1 Samuel chapter 5 says, the Philistines took the ark that has just been described in the way that I explained it, as the place where God's presence dwelled with his people. They took the ark and they placed it in the temple of their idol god dagon and it was there for seven months and what do we read well if you know your old testament history for those seven months the nation of the philistines were plagued by terrible plagues they were tormented by god because they took that holy thing And they brought it and profaned it in their idolatrous temple. So what do they do? In 1 Samuel chapter 6, the Philistines returned the ark to Israel and said, you can have it. 
I mean, this is how interesting, amazing, special the Ark of the Covenant was. So the Philistines return it to Israel, and it stayed in one place, Kiriath Jerim, for the next 20 years. This is where David goes to retrieve it. Now, it's given a different name in 2 Samuel 6, but it's the same place. And this is where the story picks up in verses 3 through 11. They placed the ark of God on a new cart that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which was on, a, on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were leading the new cart. So they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Ahio was walking ahead of the, car, the ark. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instrument, instruments made of fir wood and with lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. But when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence. And he died there by the ark of God. David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. So David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? And David was unwilling to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David with him. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. Thus the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. David's trying to do the right thing and it just goes off the rails, right? Or off the cart. But what's going on here? The ark is on its way to Jerusalem. David is celebrating, as verse 5 indicates. I mean, it's a massive parade kind of celebration. All sorts of music and dancing and celebratory kinds of things are going with it. And it's not just David. It's the 30,000 men that are with him. As they march the Ark of the Covenant closer and closer towards Jerusalem. But along the way of the parade, the cart that the Ark is on is unsettled when one of the oxen nearly upsets it. Right? It's being carried along by these animals, and one of the animals trips, hits a pothole, right? It's like perfect Pennsylvania road kind of weather, right? Hits the pothole, is jostled, the ark is sliding off of the cart. One of the guys that's with the ark moving along named Uzzah is with him or with the, the ark, with David, with the men, sees the ark, this holy representation of God being with his people, slide off the cart, and very instinctively, what does he do? He reaches out to catch it. That seems like a noble thing to do, right? I mean, this is the holy representation of the presence of God with the nation of Israel. He reaches out to grab it, and what happens? He doesn't just die. First, we see God's attitude towards that event. What do we read? The anger of the Lord burned against 
other. Why? Because nobody is allowed to touch the ark. It is the holy representation where God dwells. Numbers 4.15 says, When Aaron and his sons have finished covering the holy objects, they put more objects in the ark and all the furnishings of the sanctuary. When the camp is set to set out, after that the sons of Koath shall come to carry them so that they will not touch the holy objects and what? Die. And so there was a, a, a warning given by God to his people. Don't touch the ark. Why? You're going to die. Well, Uzzah instinctively reaches out, grabs the ark, saves the ark from hitting the ground, and he dies. The anger of the Lord burned against him. I preached on this incident a couple months ago. If you, if you remember that, I, I quoted a, a statement by theologian R.C. Sproul. He said of this incident, Uzzah presumed that his hands were cleaner than the dirt that was on the ground. But they weren't. And so we read, Asa's dead. Parade's over. Nobody's celebrating. Verses 8 and 9. David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. Verse 9. So David was afraid of the Lord that day. David was mad that the ark was stuck and he couldn't bring it with him. His plan to bring God's presence to Jerusalem was stalled. J. Vernon McGee said this about this event in chapter 6. Doing a right thing a wrong way. And that's what David was doing. He took a shortcut. Well, really, he took the only way he knew. But it wasn't the way that God had prescribed. But God's word clearly explained who was to carry the ark. The priests were to carry it on poles. And the Kohathites were to help in that process. David was also likely angry because he expected God's blessing. He was trying to do the right thing. He wanted God's presence in the holy, in the holy place that would also be a part of the city that David would set up the city of David where he would reign. And, and he's probably thinking, hey, I'm doing the right thing, God. I want you with us. I want your presence with us. I want people to come and celebrate you. I want you to guide me. I want you to lead me in the leadership of your people. All of those things. And now this has happened. But God taught David that day that obedience is more important than good intentions. Obedience to God is more important than good intentions. And I think that's where we get ourselves into trouble too. We cut corners spiritually. We have good intentions to honor God, to bless Him, to grow, to serve. But we do it our way. And we can't do things in a spiritual way our way because it's really fleshly. And if we're trying to please God with our effort, we know what that brings. It doesn't bring God's blessing. At best, it brings God's chastening as he disciplines us, as he corrects us. 
But if we're going to follow God, we need to listen to his word, listen to what he wants. And we need to understand that this walk with him is there's no corners to be cut where we can just say, hey, I read my Bible three days in a row. Okay, now I'm super spiritual. It doesn't work that way. We need to, as Romans 12, 1 and 2 say, present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. All of us, like all of who we are. I mean, at best, sometimes we give them some and maybe sometimes a little more. But if we're honest, sometimes we don't give anything to God. And we expect him to work and and strengthen us and bless us. And we need to remember that even in the age of grace, we are to pursue God in holiness and reverence. We are to obey his word and put it into practice. If we don't, we're cutting corners. And we cannot expect God to bless. And so what do we read in verses 10 and 11? Well, the first thing we read is David doesn't know what to do next. So he leaves the ark right there where it fell and he, and it remained with Obed Edom for three months. And what do we read? Well, where, where the ark fell near this guy's home, that guy's home was blessed. Well, Absolutely, because God's presence was with him. But what's interesting is what David does. David did not go back to Jerusalem and pout. He didn't say, oh, plan's over. Okay, well, there goes that effort. What did David do? He went home and dug into the scriptures. David did his homework. And we don't see that here, but we see it in the parallel passage in 1 Chronicles chapter 15. And so turn in your Bibles to 1 Chronicles chapter 15. It's a few books ahead. So we're looking at 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles. So we're in 1 Chronicles and 1 and 2 Chronicles is really a summary of of 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings. It's the chronicles of the kings of Israel. And we read in 1st Chronicles 15 this, beginning in verse 1. Let me read verses 1 and 2. Now David built houses for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Then David said, No one is to carry the ark of God but the Levites, for the Lord chose them to carry the ark of God and to minister to him forever. Now, when you read 1 Chronicles 15, if you read that first and then went back to 2 Samuel 6, my question is, that's not what happened. Right? David makes these plans. He's not talking about the Levites carrying the ark. They put it on a new cart and rolled it towards Jerusalem. But what Chronicles tells us is that this is what took place after the event of Uzzah. David tried it his way. 
And then he went back. He searched the Scriptures. And he says, this is how we are to do it. We read in verses 13 through 15 in 1 Chronicles 15 this, Because you did not carry it at the first, the Lord our God made an outburst on us, for we did not seek him according to the ordinance. That's what they were thinking after the first event with Uzzah. We didn't do it right. God was angry. There was an outburst. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel. The sons of the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles thereon, as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. Oh, David, way to go. You read your Bible and you listened to what it said. There were to be poles through the the golden hoops on the corners of the ark, as we read from Exodus. And that is how it was to be carried. It wasn't to be placed on a cart. And now David comes to understand, okay, this is how you move the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Chuck Swindoll said this about the details God included in the scriptures about the moving of the ark. He said this, if the Lord cared enough to write it, all those details, and cared enough to preserve it, like it was still in existence in David's life, it's still for us today. Then he says, God cares enough about the details to have you and me pull it off precisely his way. So think about that. When you read the Bible, when you read the scriptures, when you're reading through the New Testament, things that were written 2,000 years ago that you might be tempted to think in that moment, it's too hard. That's too antiquated. God doesn't really expect me to do this. I want you to think for yourself a couple of things. The first thing is God said it. It's his word to us. The second thing, as he said these things, by his spirit, he has preserved his word for 2,000 years so that what we are reading today is what was written then. And if God went through that process to say these things and to secure these things, why wouldn't he want us to do those things right now? We can't cut corners. And think, we'll figure it out along the way. And so what did they do in verses 12 through 18? Now it was told King David saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him on the account of the ark of God. David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. And so it was that when the bearers of the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. Now, just to stop there and talk about what's happening, there's two possible interpretations of what is being saying about these six paces. Number one, they either went six paces, stopped, offered a sacrifice, and after they offered the sacrifice, they kept moving forward. The second interpretation, and some people believe this is actually what occurred. They took six steps. They offered a sacrifice. They took six more steps. They offered a sacrifice. They took six more steps. They offered a sacrifice. And they did this every six steps on their way to Jerusalem. Now, if you were the line of oxes and fatlings that were with them, you're probably thinking, oh boy, there goes my cousin. There goes my uncle. I'm next. Right? You know, because like every six steps, why did they do this? They were offering worship to God all along the way, the way that God 
wanted them to do it. And so what do we read? And David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouting and the sound of the trumpet. Then it happened as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David that Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. So they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent, which David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. When David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Further, he distributed to all the people, to all the multitude of Israel, both to men and women, a cake of bread and one of the dates and one of dates and one of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed each to his house. But when David returned to bless his household, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel distinguished how the king of Israel distinguished himself today. He uncovered himself today in the eyes of his servants maids as one of the foolish ones shamelessly uncovers himself. So David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will be more lightly esteemed than this and will be humbled in my own eyes. But with the maids of whom you have spoken with them, I will be distinguished. Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Okay, so David's bringing in the ark. The ark makes it in. His wife, who was his first wife, the daughter of Saul. Remember, she was the daughter in 2 Samuel that David said, Hey, I need to go get her and bring her back because they had been separated for a very long time. She had already been remarried. David's like, bring her to me. We talked about that whole incident. And she was kind of just pulled away from her current husband to go back to David and the whole mess that created. And so she's there watching this whole parade set up. And what does she notice about David? She thinks that he's acting foolishly. So, so, so what do we know? How did he act? Well, he wore a linen ephod and he was offering sacrifices. And you might hear those things and, he, and you might say, well, that seemed kind of foolish because he was acting like a priest. That's what the priest did. But David's not a priest. But in no way was David doing anything wrong. The ephod that he was wearing was a, a linen ephod, and it was a representation of him being set apart for God. And in his desire to lead God's people in worship, he was not overstepping his bounds in anything that he accomplished. But in her eyes, he was acting like a fool, dancing around, Free of the spirit, right? We might look at him in conservative churches like ours and think, whew, that guy's crazy. But he's doing what God wants him to do. God's way. And God is being honored and celebrated. And so she confronts David. He, he comes and blesses his family. And she's like, David, what you did was wrong. Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him. How the king of Israel distinguished himself today. He uncovered himself today in the eyes of his servants. And what does David say? You're just mad because your dad's not king anymore. God chose me 
really the bitterness that she had because her dad would have never acted the way that David was acting. Never would have celebrated God's presence in this way. And so we read in verse 23, she had no child to the day of her death. It's likely that David no longer had relations with her because of this event, and she didn't have any more kids. But I think providentially, this is God preserving the line of David, not mixing it with the line of Saul, so that there was any question or concern who was Saul or David's descendants. And so there you have it. The danger of doing things our way, not God's way. The challenge for us is will we trust him when it's time to obey? Because here's what I know in my life. In those moments when it's time to trust him, sometimes it's a slow process. Like I want to trust God in that moment and then the next moment I want to see God's hand at work and I want to see the situation figured out. Any of you like me? It doesn't work that way. I would say that every moment of your life is in preparation for all of those moments that will come. There are no days off in a walk with God. There's no rest from following God in his word and enjoying him and hearing what he says and asking his spirit to work in your life to conform you to the image of his glorious son that came and died on the cross for you. And when you start thinking about it in those terms, in those ways, why would we ever take a day off? We have received such grace, such love. Why wouldn't we want to follow everything that God says? Because we know he wants what is best for us. To love God is to love his word. Please don't cut corners in your relationship with him. His word preserved for us is a gift of grace as he seeks to help us in our walk with him. And that path will always lead to his blessing. Let's pray.